my name is Matt, if we haven't met before. Uh, I'm one of the elders around here, uh, so I'll give some oversight and leadership and, and serve the gathering here. Um, yeah, so today uh, we're going to continue on in Matthew. Uh, it's our five-year journey through the book of Matthew. We're on chapter 9 of 28, so we've been doing it for a year. You guys do the math. It's going to take a while. Uh, but it's been great. It's been really enjoyable. My name is Matt. It's my favorite book. We could do this forever. Uh, and today we find ourselves, you know, Jesus has given this great sermon, and now he's actually in the midst of, of doing ministry uh, and working things out and being with people and, and just performing great miracles. And so we're going to dive into to Matthew 9 here in a bit. So pull your Bibles and your apps, grab one up front if you need one. But the question I want us to ask ourselves today is, how do we approach Jesus? And we're going to see some various options and ways that people do that this morning. But I'll give you the answer right now because you're all going to forget it, so I'll give it to you like four times. Jesus wants us to put our death, our pride, and our uncertainties and approach him humbly with faith. And even this morning, as I like, I usually don't get nervous when I do this anymore, but for some reason, someone asked me this this morning, hey, Matt, do you get nervous? I'm like, no, not really. Not anymore. I've done this for a while, but as I get my heart's beating right now, you guys might hear it in my voice. Um, and Jesus just convicted me right now, as before I even dive into this, that like, yeah, I can't do this on my own. I can't come up here. I got nothing to tell you guys. I just need to humbly submit that he's going to teach you something this morning through his word. Uh, and I need to get out of the way. So I'm going to pray to that end, because um, I'm feeling this nervous anxiety that usually isn't here. Um, but it's Jesus' grace to me. So, yeah, Jesus, thank you that you meet us where we're at. Um, that you send your spirit to convict us and show us that you are better. Uh, you're better than our pride or what we think we can do, um, that you have a better plan and that you are powerful and all-knowing. So I pray that as we dive into your text this morning, as we get to meet with you, that we can die to ourselves and humbly approach you, not let our pride get in the way, not let our knowledge of how we think things are get in the way, but really experience you this morning. Thank you that you want to meet with us. Amen. So open up your uh, Bibles there to Matthew 9. I'm going to start in verse 18. I'm going to do something a little bit different. Usually we just go through, read a passage, find a word that we like, and hang a bunch of thoughts off it. We're going to do a little bit of that this morning. Um, but I wanted to do something a little bit different and put on a different lens of looking at the Bible. We do this often around West Village, but in our own lives we don't always. Uh, and the beautiful part of the Bible is each of these stories are so rich. You know, we could preach three different sermons, four or five. Chris could preach a hundred on one little passage, right? Um, <clears throat> I want us today to put ourselves in the shoes of those around Jesus. We so often when we read the Bible put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, right? Like we read a story, we see who the hero is, and then we assume that we're just going to act like that hero, and that's what the Bible's calling us to do. But I find the Bible so much richer is when we place ourselves in the shoes around, of those around Jesus. Put ourselves in the, the villain's roles, because usually we're the villain, or the broken people, or the people coming to Jesus. Uh, there's richness there. Uh, don't assume that we are the awesome ones in this story. Always make sure that Jesus is the hero. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at three types of people and how they approach Jesus. So I'm calling the first person the good, the good broken person. So let's read in... Uh, Verse 18. I'm going to cheat and read off my paper here today because I have the wrong version. Can't have you guys reading something different on the screen. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, so verse 18, 918. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up, went with him, and so did his disciples. 
who's this first person we see? Synagogue leader. Uh, some of you probably don't even know what synagogue is. Uh, it's the common church gathering place. It's really it was the center of communities back then. And so the synagogue leader is a man of influence in his community. Uh, he, he's a good person, someone people look up to. Um, he really has it all together. He's respected. Uh, people will look to him for advice, all those things. Uh, his life really looked like someone that did the right thing. There wasn't a lot of mess or scandal. Uh, always making sure that the religious leaders and the community viewed him well and looked up to him. He's a stable force uh, in that community. He has it all together. Uh, he'd be the you know, typical good person. So we have this man who comes to Jesus. But we need to recognize the scandal in him coming to Jesus, right? Jesus, he started his ministry. He started preaching things that are different and strange to what the religious leaders are saying. Uh, he's starting to be known as a heretic. They're starting to get glimpses of Jesus saying he's powerful and God and, and all these things. So uh, approaching Jesus for this good, upright, religious person has an element of scandal in it. He knows he's going against the grain. He knows it might not be best to be associated with this Jesus character because the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders are starting to say, we don't agree with him. His ways aren't right. He's saying stuff that goes against our way of understanding. So there's scandal. But this man in the midst of his brokenness, why does he approach Jesus? Because his daughter is dying. His pain drives him to Jesus. He is desperate. It's an important part of his approach. It's important. And his desperation and his pain, he comes to Jesus and what does he do? He doesn't demand. He doesn't say, do this. He kneels before him. He gives him reverence and respect. As he gets on his knees and he comes with hope and faith that nothing he can do can raise his daughter, bring her back. He's at the end of himself. And he's heard about this Jesus. He's heard rumblings and stories of amazing things that have gone on. And he believes that only Jesus has the power to heal, to restore, to bring his daughter back to him. No parent wants to see their child pass away before them, right? So that's the place that this man comes from. That's the image we get uh, in these short few verses of a desperate man trying to save his child. Jesus is his only hope. That's the man. That's, that's how he came to Jesus. And the question that I'm going to ask in each of these three people is, how are we like them? What parts of us resonate with the good and the bad in them? How do we approach Jesus like them? So the first question we need to ask ourselves when we're thinking about this synagogue leader, this good, upright man, this leader, is do we think we have our lives together? When you get up on a Monday morning and looking through your week, you're like, yeah. This is a good week. You're doing good things. Come here on a gathering. Puff out your chest. Be like, yeah, I served like 100 people at the Easter egg hunt last week. I'm a good person. I got it together. My kids are not the ones hitting each other in Sunday school. You know? They got their shirt on the right way. They're wearing socks. They changed their underwear yesterday. We're good. Is that you? Is that what we think? And we, it is funny. Because um, my kids probably didn't change their underwear this morning, but um, we think of ourselves having our lives together, right? And, and we can think of this in the West Village lingo, lingo and language. You know, do you serve at a gathering? Are you in kids two Sundays a month? 
Are you in a community group? Are you regularly discipling others, bringing them to Jesus, reading the Bible together, challenging them, gospeling them, showing them where disbelief is in their lives? Is this you? Do you have your life together in that way? Are you a good missionary to your neighbors? Um, you know, are you, are you jealous that you didn't get to come up here and share that story because um, you want to be the good person that gets proclaimed on the front? I want to be known as that person that has my life together. Obviously, this won't apply to all of us, but I see this attitude. It grows in churches. We're constantly holding up examples of how Jesus is awesome and calling people to that. And us as prideful people want to be known like that, right? We want to be the person that gets A's and checks off all the boxes. And, and that attitude grows up in churches. They quickly become just glorified country clubs where we just want to show our own resumes to each other and hopefully get into heaven at the end, right? Have nice, tidy, clean lives. We become self-sufficient. We know how to live the good Christian life, and we slowly lose our need for Jesus. It seeps away as we get better, and our need for him decreases, and our pride increases in ourselves. So our lives start to become more defined by right actions than right relationship with Jesus. And that's the man before his daughter dies. It's a lot of us in this room. That's me on some days. I care more about looking and telling stories to you guys and being a good example than I care about making sure my heart's in the right place. So what drives him to Jesus? What drives us to Jesus? A lot of you aren't going to like this answer. I don't like this answer. But it's brokenness and pain. Something didn't go according to this man's plan. His daughter died. His world is shaken. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing he can do to fix that. Except, except this one thing. Uh, This quote came to mind. You guys are probably familiar with it. Uh, It comes from C.S. Lewis. We've used it before. But it really captures what's going on here. C.S. Lewis says, We can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain drives us to the end of ourselves. It forces us to acknowledge that we can't fix everything. And that's the place that this man finds himself in. We see how he responds to pain. He searches out this man that he hears can do amazing things. The good news of Jesus has reached him, and he responds by pursuing Jesus and approaching him humbly on his knees. But how do we? How do we respond to the pain in our lives? We cannot deny that our world and our lives are full of pain. If you're doing that, you're deceiving yourselves. Look at the news. Look at the junk in your own life, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings. There's brokenness there. We can't deny that as Christians. Not everything is rosy. Um, The Bible, Jesus is good news only because there's bad news that the world's broken, right? So we try and hide it and control it with our tidy lives where everything's in order and in place. put band-aids on big problems, we ignore them, we sweep them in the closet, but the pain of sin always seeps through. It finds a way of bubbling up to the surface, 
in our relationships, in our communities, in our work, in our actions. It always comes out. So every time that sin destroys a relationship, ruins an action, or hinders our emotions, or causes these emotions to run out of control, we have a choice. That choice is, do we ignore it or try and fix it? Do we deny it and hide it so that we appear to be good Christians or good people, bury it down deep? You know, this is when someone asks you how your day is going, the answer is always good, right? There's no other answer because then you'd have to open up. That's me. I'm guilty of that all the time. I don't want to talk to you people. Um, is that us? Is that a sign? Uh, I appreciate the people most. My wife's really good at this. You ask her how her day is going, she'll like probably say crappy if she's having a bad day, right? Um, she's really honest, and then you'll have to have a half-hour conversation with her about it. So be warned. It's usually a good conversation, but um, it's going to happen. I'm going to hear about that when I get out of here. So that's one option. Do we hide from it? Try and fix it ourselves. You know, having a bad day means I just need to sleep more, eat better, have more discipline in my life. That'll have make me have a good day tomorrow. We hide it. Or take the posture of this man and turn to Jesus because we know we are hopeless without him. If we make a habit in our day of standing up and saying, Jesus, I can't do this. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to fix this problem. But I trust that you do. Is that a posture that we regularly take and depend on and go to? Do we humbly approach him as broken people, knowing that we can't get it done without him? Recognizing that Jesus is the only one that can sustain our lives and heal our brokenness. Synagogue leader, death confronts him. Nothing he can do about that. Jesus is the only hope. And the last part, of all these people, look at how Jesus responds. This is really the most amazing part of all these stories, right? The gospel means good news. The good news is watching how Jesus acts here. Jesus has compassion. There's no questions. The man says, my daughter has died. Jesus has compassion and he goes with him. He follows him. He wants to make this right desires to make us whole again, just wants us to humbly approach him and ask for help. He's just waiting for us to really stop fooling ourselves into thinking that we got it all together or we can do this or that we aren't broken and come and kneel before him. That's the first man. Probably resonates with a lot of us in this room. I know that one resonates with me more than the next person we're going to see. But we'll start to see patterns in both these people of this humble faith, this deep humility and recognition of their brokenness. So let's keep going on. Person number two, I'm calling them the outcast. So this is verse 20. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. You wish you were in Avengers now, not in here talking about menstrual disorders, aren't you? Huh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. 
So who is this woman? Her life is defined by this bleeding. This is obviously gross, and you should feel that it's gross because we want to like put ourselves in the story. But she just had this menstrual disorder that caused excessive bleeding. You can imagine back then. I'm not going to dive into this. Um, Andrew wanted me to like paint gross pictures for you, but I won't. And besides just like the physical repulsion of this and the discomfort and all those things, it's actually an even bigger deal uh, in the society she lived in. So in Jewish culture, if you guys are familiar with the Old Testament and where the Bible story right now is situated in, Jewish culture is really based around this idea of clean and unclean. So they had all these laws that made sure that they were clean and right and ready to worship God properly and, and interact in society. And unclean things, uh, they were all defined and, and menstrual discharge was one of them. And <clears throat> if you were considered unclean, you couldn't interact with society in a lot of ways properly. And, and ultimately, you were a pariah. You were an outcast. There was a sense that you could never be right with God. You can imagine the pressure, the weight that this would bring on her. Our was shaped around avoiding people, living on the outskirts, making sure she didn't contaminate anybody else. Whatever she touched became unclean, can't share a dish with someone, can't prepare food for people. This is a huge burden. Pop in here. She is constantly being reminded physically that she is unclean, and emotionally and spiritually by those around here, how unclean she is. And that defines her, becomes part of her identity. She is utterly broken. She's repulsive, always on the fringes, never involved. People would avoid her wherever possible, right? She's that person. We all know who they are. They walk into a gathering, into a room, or we see them on the street or at a social event. You're just really hoping they don't come up and join your conversation. Because it's just going to ruin the good times you're having. No one wanted to risk that, that tainting. So how does this lady, how does this woman, this humbly at great cost? She doesn't come and make a huge scene as was kind of but then she approached Jesus. <laughs> Popping. Um, she approached Jesus from behind. All she desired to do was touch the tassels of his robe, the shawl. She had faith that this was all that was needed. This faith would heal her. His touch would heal her. But she had to go in the midst of a crowd that followed Jesus. There was cost, right? Um, she was afraid how the people around would point at her and ridicule her and, and the shame that would come with that. I'm just not going to move. Stay perfectly still. She knows that Jesus is her only hope. She has to get to him to be restored and to be healed, to be made right physically, the people around her, 
more importantly to her was God. There was a sense that she would never be right with God if she was unclean like this. So she was desperate for this. Jesus is her only source of hope. So how can we be like her? We need to acknowledge that too much. That this is really a choice in our life. We rarely choose this, right? This is something we fall into or just happens to us. It's hard. And for some of us, you know, we're a middle class, predominantly white church. And uh, a lot of us probably don't resonate with this woman, but some of us do. Some of us come from really hard times and hard places. And life has been difficult. You resonate with this woman. You understand what it means to be an outcast and broken. Society doesn't always have a place for you. It feels like the church doesn't always have a place for you. I'm sorry if that has been the case. Jesus wants something different. And if that is you, just hold on one sec. There's good news coming. If that's not you, if that's most of us in this room, pay attention. Because this is the posture that Jesus desires for his people to approach him. He wants us to come broken at the end of ourselves, solely reliant on him, only saved by faith because there's nothing else. Everything else is garbage besides a chance to be made new by Jesus. He desires us to come with a humility that is informed by a deep sense of brokenness that we can't do it ourselves with the recognition that nothing can save us except him. For those of us that can approach Jesus that way, either through circumstance or recognition, he has good news for us. It's amazing news. How does Jesus respond to this woman? Tender compassion. He heals her. Her entire life, if she reached out to touch someone, they would jump out of the way. They would run away, turn their back for her, to her, never acknowledge her. What does Jesus do? He turns to her. He sees her. And he says, take heart, daughter. Jesus doesn't call many people in the Bible daughter. I think this is the only chance, place he does it. This is a special honor, right? Saying, I know you and I love you and I accept you. It says, your faith has healed you. Not what you've done, not who you are. Your humble faith to approach me as a broken person. Jesus isn't worried about becoming unclean, about taking on her sin. Ultimately, he's going to do that for all of us on the cross, right? That's what this leads to. That's what this is a little foreshadowing on. Of Jesus isn't afraid of that. He will take that on. He will heal her and make her right. He welcomes her in. He restores her. This is amazing. This is scandalous. People in that crowd, their minds would have been blown to see Jesus treat this lady like this. We need to rest here and feel the weight of that, right?
We need to see this God that we worship and how good and amazing he is and what he does for the broken, which is really all of us. We just can't always admit it yet. So hopefully you can rest there and appreciate what Jesus has done. So that's the second person. Very different. But they approach Jesus in ultimately very similar ways. Because of their brokenness, they are humbled, and they come to him with that posture. You can picture that synagogue leader on his knees. In my head, I picture this woman kind of crawling up to Jesus. Those pictures define heart postures of what they think is going on. Let's look at the third person or group that we find in this story, starting in verse 23. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, so he's continued on. This woman came in the midst of his traveling. We're back to the synagogue leader. Jesus is fulfilling his synagogue leader's wishes to come and to heal and to, to have that worked out. So when Jesus entered the synagogue leader house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep, but they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. So we see Jesus healing. The people I want to talk about in this, in this little snippet here is actually the crowd. This noisy crowd and people playing pipes. What, what's going on? Uh, so this would be weird in a funeral in our time. Noisy crowd, people playing pipes. But back then, it was actually part of Jewish culture. People would come, and they'd hire professional mourners. It's a job we all want. Where you go, and you, you exclaim, and you proclaim the grief and the anguish and that a death has occurred, and people play music, and it's not a celebration, but it's this proclamation to the whole community that we are in mourning, that death has come. And so these guys were, they're professionals. That's what, this was their job. Imagine trying to get up for work every day that day. Uh, it's very different than what we think of funerals today, the, the somber, quiet uh, thing we do with death. But they are, these guys are just really going through the religious motions. This is what's required of them. This is what it looked like. Um, and they, they laugh at Jesus because he comes in and they think he's too late. There's no way this girl is dead. You know, what type of people can laugh at a funeral, right? And I struggled the most with this group of people, probably because I see the most in myself, which is the laughter, I think, summarizes their heart posture more than anything, right? There's an arrogance to this laughter. They think they know what's going on. They think they have it all figured out. But Jesus proves them wrong. So how do they approach Jesus? You know, they assume that they know that they know better than him. They laugh at him. His foolish assertion that the girl is just sleeping. How dumb are you, Jesus? She's dead. If she was sleeping, we'd wake her up. They're arrogant doubters of Jesus's power and Jesus's knowledge. So how are we like these people? 
what part of them lives in us? This is us when we think that we are smarter than Jesus. And uh, this is what I wrote in my notes here, confess. No one likes to see that part in their notes. But this is me. This is me when I think I have it all figured out. When I know the best thing for myself and for you to do in my life or in your lives. When I tell my wife, just do these three things and it'll all get better. And you come to me with a discipleship issue or a church issue or a community group issue. And I'm like, yeah, here's three things. Here's what I did last time. This kind of prideful knowledge that there's a one-size-fit-all solution for these things or that I understand better than you do. And as I prepped on this and looked at this and let this sink in, let the spirit make me nervous and anxious to do this, came to the realization that my arrogant posture offends Jesus. It actually causes me and us, if this is you, to miss out on what he's doing and what he has for us. So this is us when we think we're smarter than Jesus, when I think I'm smarter than Jesus. This is also us when we doubt what Jesus has taught us is true. When you listen to a sermon, when you read your Bible, you're like, that can't actually be right. He didn't understand that, you know, we're 2,000 years in the future and life's different now. We have the internet and cars and cell phones. Changes everything. You know, I, I really doubt that Jesus can protect my children from the internet, from Facebook, from bullying at school. So I got to go in there. I got to control their lives to a T. Take them out of the world. Protect them from the world. Set these boundaries. Not that all those are always bad things. We have this posture of doubt that ultimately Jesus is in control of our kids. Or maybe it's, I doubt that Jesus will satisfy me. We've got to keep going to those websites because Jesus didn't know how hard it is to be a dude these days. He didn't know the temptations are out there. He didn't know what I would be compared to and exposed to. He can't actually satisfy me. It's different now. We doubt him. Or if you're a good old church people, you doubt that Jesus fully saved you. In the back of your mind, you're always thinking, I need to do five more good things so that my heavenly resume looks good. I need to prove myself because I want to act. I want to do. I don't trust. I don't believe when Jesus says it is finished that he is saying the work of beating sin and death is fully done. Nothing else we can do. I doubt Jesus, fill in the blank. hundred things that we could put in there. So this is us. We need to recognize that all sin in our lives stems from our doubts. It stems from our disbelief in who Jesus is and what he claims he can do or has done. And our sin is offensive to him. What does he say to this crowd? Go away. because it says that he is not quite enough to save or to satisfy. We say to Jesus with our doubts, thanks for dying, got me 90% of the way there, or 90% of the way satisfied, and I'll make up the rest myself. That's insanely offensive to Jesus. 
so we need to recognize him as the most offended party with our disbelief and our doubts. And we take the attitude of the crowd saying, we know better. We have this figured out. This is also us. When we think that action is more important than belief, when we just go through the actions of serving, trying to be good Christians, but fail to recognize our own failings, when you serve in the gathering because we asked for help and you felt bad, instead of because, man, Jesus, you left the amazing heaven, came to earth, you washed some, your disciples' feet? Why would you do that? Why would you serve like that? Man, how could I not serve in response to a God like that? This is us when church habit and tradition causes us to stop caring for the broken in our midst. And we'll probably go on a whole sermon into just that piece. We come on a Sunday, and we ignore the brokenness around us. We make it uncomfortable for broken people to come in here for those outcast people to come in here. But we don't have time for that. And this response, looking at how Jesus responds to the crowd, is probably the hardest part for this whole sermon to me today. I don't want to be gentle here. But what does he do? He sends them away. I don't want you to hear that you have to be perfect or that you can't have doubts, or your beliefs have to all be perfect, because Jesus still pursues us in the midst of that. But when our posture is this arrogant pride of know-it-all, Jesus doesn't have patience for us, right? He doesn't want us to get in the way of the work that he has to do. So he says, go away. That's a harsh word. It's a really harsh word. Jesus has no time for these religiously arrogant people. They are the people that he likes the least in this whole story of scripture, right? The harshest words are for the religious leaders and the people that have, think they have their lives together and know what's going on. For those who willingly let their disbelief interfere with Jesus' work. So he sends them away. Hopefully you feel the weight of that. If you have been sitting in this theater for many years, have heard many sermons, you have a pretty good idea what's going on and what people's should, lives should look like. That's the word for you. Do you put your pride to death? Do you regularly recognize your brokenness? Because what does Jesus do afterwards? He sends them away continues filling on his promise to the synagogue leader. He heals his daughter. He brings her back from the death. Those arrogant doubters, they missed out on this amazing miracle because their posture was wrong. They didn't humble themselves. They didn't open their eyes and see what was going on, what Jesus had for them. They didn't understand Jesus' mission his cares and his desires to heal a broken world and a broken people. Hmm. 
he'll land this plane. That was for you, Adam. So conclusion, last little verse at the end. News of this spread all throughout that region. So we have a choice when we hear about who Jesus is and what he's done. We have a choice in how we're going to approach him. So that's the question I'll leave with you guys as we end this. How will you approach Jesus? Are you going to be the noisy crowd defined by your arrogant doubt, your arrogant knowledge that you think you know better? And if you think that doesn't live in you, you're probably deceiving yourselves. We are prideful people. I'm a prideful person. Or do we take the humble posture of the synagogue leader or the sick woman? If we put to death our pride and our uncertainties, do we approach Jesus with that humble faith? We're probably not just one of these people, right? There's bits of all of them in us. The call that Jesus leaves us with today is maintain, work towards, make a habit of that posture. Put to death your arrogance and pride every day. We all need to recognize that we are broken sinners who are unclean before Jesus, just like that woman. And all we can do is have faith. It's the only thing that will save faith in this God who came from heaven to earth who did amazing things for us that has compassion we will turn to this outcast woman take heart daughter and heal her so when the church is filled with this type of people then we see how that last verse happens news of this spread all throughout that region humble people saved by faith that remain that posture Good news like that, good news of a God like that cannot help but spread throughout the city. We'll call the band back up. Pray for us. Jesus, I recognize that, yeah, I'm broken, that you're a room full of broken, sinful people. We need you. Don't just need you once or once a month or once a week. We need you all the time to remind us, to show us that we are riddled with sin and that you are the only one that can restore and renew and show us the life that you want for us. So, Lord, I pray that we will be a church defined by that, people defined by our humility and our brokenness, that the good news will be so much better because people will see that we are sinful and that you are so good. And that'll cause news of you to spread all throughout the region. Amen.